while typing an email to her estranged father. This is not, not a spoiler. This doesn't give me any way. This is like the first five minutes of the film. And there was something that happened that 100% took me out of the film. It's because this teen girl was listening to the Pixies. Now, I brought up the Pixies to a couple of my coworkers who are younger in their 20s, and they have never heard of the Pixies, which is exactly what I expected. Because if these 20-year-olds have not heard of the Pixies, despite the fact that they've probably heard Pixies songs in things, where did this 13-year-old girl pick up on the Pixies? And what I realized in that moment was the director or the music producer or someone who made the decision of what song to use for this girl to listen to was probably my age. And that's the problem. The Pixies were popular when I was in high school. So as soon as the first chord played, I knew exactly what song it was. I could sing along with it. And then I thought, why is this child listening to this? It doesn't make any sense. The Pixies were a great band for their day, but they did not last for decades and decades afterwards. They were very influential on bands that came later. But the bands you hear now that would have been influenced by them were actually influenced by a secondary band that was influenced by the Pixies. And this has now happened in a couple of films. I realized that people who are making movies or making the decisions in movies are probably all people about my age because they're making decisions of things that I would recognize as being cool. And now, as a sensible human being, I realize that that's not cool. Because if I think it's cool, if it was cool when I was young, it's not cool anymore. And it's not old enough to actually be retro yet. But then you have to go and talk to young people and find out what they think is cool. And what they think is cool in the moment may not be cool six months from now when the movie's actually released. And that's where you get into a problem. Should you use things that were cool to old men, which I actually believe the answer is no, or you, do you take the risk and do something that's cool right now that won't be cool in six months? Because you have no idea because you're out of touch, because you're like me, you're old. I'm noticing these decisions more and more, and I'm trying to think of a solution, and I don't really have one. But I think maybe the answer is instead of using established music, is to just have them come up with original songs. And they might hit or miss, but we're talking about 30 seconds in a movie that's going to be forgotten five minutes later when a big monster comes on screen. So it's a chance worth taking, and it really will take away the, the negative effect of me going, Wait a minute, why is that child listening to music that was popular when I was in high school 30 years ago? Cora question, do morticians experience paranormal activity at their work site? No, because paranormal activity is not real. Follow-up question to the 
Quora question. Do morticians experience paranormal activity at their work site? Do ghosts really exist? No. They don't. Quora question. What can someone do or wear to be perceived as someone of a high net worth? Now, this is an interesting question because I only know so many people who have a lot of money. And that's not many, to be honest. And the people I know who have a lot of money are well off. But I don't even think they would be called rich. But through my experience in teaching, I have met some people who... I, I met a couple of men who own multiple companies. So these were clearly millionaires. Uh, I have interacted with some of these people. Not in a social way. But it was very interesting to me because none of them dressed in a way that would indicate that they were well off. They wore clothes... Their clothes were always very nice. You could clearly see that what they were buying was expensive, but it in no way stood out. And I like watches. So basically, I would notice their watch and notice that, wow, that is a very expensive watch. There were probably a ton of other indicators that I missed because I'm not very up on fashion or brands or things like that. Like they might have a belt that was very expensive. Uh, but at no point of any of these men that I met who were really, really rich... Did they ever wear anything that would clearly make it seem like they had a lot of money? And the stories I've heard about executives, you have the level of executive that wears a very expensive suit, probably Armani, a brand of some sort, tailored to fit, all that kind of stuff. And then you have the boss who shows up in shorts and a t-shirt because there is a certain level of wealth where you just do whatever you want. And what most people want is extreme comfort. So that guy walking around in the office in sandals is probably the richest guy in the office. So it's almost like there's a peak, like you are a slacker and you wear really ratty clothes and then you start to dress professionally. So you go to the Gap and you buy some pants and a shirt and then you get a little more money and you get a little more position in life and you work a little harder and you get some suits and then you get some tailored suits and then you maybe get some brand name tailored suits. And then you sort of drop off all of a sudden because now you've passed this cap where the expectation that you wear a suit disappears and you show up in jeans and a t-shirt, shorts and a Hawaiian shirt, and you basically revert to the slacker level of appearance, but now you're part of the ultra wealthy. So of the few people I've met who probably had incredibly high net value, the actual things they did were to try to not look like they had high net value. And that was maybe one of the more interesting things because that's probably part of them being able to interact with everyone else and be able to maintain their relationships. Because if you suddenly wear a gold suit with diamond rings and a blinged out watch, people are going to think that that's weird or odd or uncomfortable or more importantly, off-putting. And then they don't want to do business with you. The behaviors, what can someone do to appear as if they have high net value. Again, these guys were of a different caliber. They were all very friendly and charming and amiable and easy to talk to. In fact, it was enjoyable to talk to because they were usually very smart and relatively passionate. And I'm betting all of these answers are not what this person wants because what this person is saying is what can I do or where to be perceived as someone with a high net worth despite the fact that I don't because I am in the same situation. I do not have a high net worth. You might not believe this, but podcasting doesn't make as much money as you might think. So the answer, unfortunately, 
is to dress normally but high quality things. So you probably, if you really, if you have a lot of money, you go to expensive stores and then you buy your t-shirts at expensive stores. But I'm betting there's even a group of people who would say no to that because they don't want to spend the extra money on something they consider a low value product. Like when Kanye was selling his shirt t-shirts with holes ripped in them, I bet a lot of people were like, I'm not paying $100 for a t-shirt that I could rip a hole in myself. So even then, I'm talking outside of my area of expertise. All I can really say is, I don't think you can appear or do things to imply high net worth. Because the people who do that, what they're doing is inherent. It's not forced. It's not something they try to do. And that's the thing you're not going to be able to achieve until you have that much money. So last week's episode, I got a few messages. Last week, I talked about the Lexus, the car, and I talked about build quality, and I talked about it being compared to other more expensive cars, and that uh, the implication of the question was that the Lexus was a lower quality luxury car than other like sports cars, and I disagreed. But what I was actually saying was what you're looking for, if you're looking for a sports car, is probably not a Lexus. So someone very rudely implied, like, what kind of car do you have if I'm such an expert about cars? Now, the thing is, knowing about cars or liking cars doesn't mean you have the money to buy expensive cars. And that would be the case I am in. So I do not have a very expensive car. I live a very normal lifestyle. While I do not have a great deal of debt, I also do not have a great deal of savings. So it's kind of balanced out that I'm doing just fine. But at no point am I going out to buy a Jaguar or a Lamborghini or even considering it. And honestly, even if I had the money, those wouldn't be the cars I would probably buy. I have one of the ugliest cars ever put on the road, and I bought that on purpose because it was the number one selling car in Japan, and it was the number one selling car in Japan for a reason. I have a Nissan Cube. It's not a popular car in North America. I know that. And people actually quite often make fun of them. But why is it the number one selling car in Japan? Well, because it's small. And that is actually really important when you're driving around Japan, which has very small roads, very tight places. It's very hard to park. And because it's a box, it has a lot of space. And I have a family and we carry stuff. So I wanted to maximize the amount of space for the minimum amount of size of car. And I fell upon the Nissan Cube pretty quickly because of it. This is not a car that was chosen because of its luxury options. Now, ironically... My version of the Nissan Cube has a button with an S on it. And if you press the S, a little light comes on in the front that says sport. Now I have pressed this button and the idea of a sport button in most cars means it firms up the shock so you can take corners harder. But considering this is a very low power car, the fact that you've firmed up the suspension just means that the ride has become less comfortable. You aren't going any faster and you honestly, because it's a box, aren't taking corners much faster either. So I've always found that to be one of the biggest jokes of owning a Cube is that mine has a sport button because you would need to transform the whole car, men in black style, for it to suddenly have any sort of real sport action involved in pressing that button. While I do not go around showing off my car, I am not ashamed of it. I think it was a very sensible choice and I can justify it. My next car, because we are thinking about buying another car, we've had the current car for almost 10 years. And in Japan, after a certain amount of time, uh, the taxes actually go up on old cars. So the government in this weird way actually forces you to buy new cars every decade or two. I'm thinking of going for a big square van because I don't want to drive a minivan. 
again, because the space in Japan is so small, having a really long front end, which most minivans do, actually makes it harder to drive and park. So I'm thinking of doing, if you go and look up the Toyota Hiace, there's a Nissan version of that, which I'm actually thinking of getting that. And I'm very pro-Nissan because the build quality has been very good. I have never in the 10 years I've owned my car had a single actual problem. We've had it for irregular maintenance. We've made sure the oils are the oils topped up and stuff like that. But we have essentially done nothing, and the car has run fine for the whole time we've owned it. So that's a very positive thing. On Monday, September thirtieth, two thousand nineteen. I don't know. Maybe you're gonna, maybe you're gonna listen to this in the future. I don't know. So I guess I should put the whole date in there. I am going to be in the sidecar once again. I Saw It on Linden Street is a podcast where they break down movies and primarily choose older ones. This month, September, has been dinosaur-themed, and I was in the sidecar for the movie Carnosaur. Now, what is the sidecar? Well, he does the movie, he breaks it down, he talks about some facts about it, he gives you some information, uh, an overview of the plot, and then there's a five-minute guest piece, and that was me in the sidecar. And I talked about corporate responsibility on that episode, and I don't know... I sent him a lot of garbage, so I don't know which bit he's going to use. Maybe he'll use it all. Maybe he'll cut it together to make more sense. But the film is called The Planet of the Dinosaurs, because this is a futuristic movie where they a spaceship crashes on a planet that has a lot of dinosaurs. Ergo the name, I think. So if you're interested in hearing about a film called The Planet of the Dinosaurs and his take on it and my take on it, Search for I Saw It on Linden Street in the app you're probably using right now because that's how you're listening to podcasts. So the Harry Potter community comes after me. Yes, that's what happened. I talked about Harry Potter and of course, fandoms don't like it when you talk about them in anything less than glowing terms. And of course, I never talk about anything in glowing terms uh, because that's just who I am. So I got a couple of messages One saying that I was pronouncing Hogwarts or Hogwarts or whatever you're supposed to say, that I was saying it wrong. Now, the implication here is that this is a sort of fallacy. If you make a mistake in one element of your argument, therefore your whole premise is now false. The fact that I did not say Hogwarts the way you want it to be said does not diminish any of my actual arguments. It does not take away any validity. And the simple fact is, it's a made-up word anyways, so I can say it any way I want. If you're going to come at me with some kind of argument fallacy, please be aware that my background wallpaper on my computer is a list of fallacies and what they mean. So before I talk about anything, any day, any time, I am looking at a list of fallacies to keep my mind right. One error within an argument does not negate the whole argument. It does not negate the premise. It does not mean you're inaccurate or incorrect. The fact that I say Hogwarts one way and not another... That's an accent difference, perhaps. It does not diminish in any way the points that I made wherein. The points I made, by the way, magic is a gun with no safety triggered by emotion in the hands of children. Because what they are doing is teaching children to do spells. And these spells can do horrible things. The dark arts, they have a class on defending yourself against the dark arts. Well, if you turn those against someone who isn't practicing the dark arts, what happens? You annihilate that person. We see the violent lightning strikes of these spells in Harry Potter. We see the capable power of a lot of these kids. Even the sort of weaker wizards within this world are terribly powerful. And they are being subject to bullying 
by the inconsiderate sensibilities of the school itself by taking all the bullies and making them into a team. The problem here is that magic is sort of fanciful bullshit. And it, it's a way to make violence feel whimsical. It detaches you from the reality of what they're actually doing. So imagine the same Harry Potter class. So you have all the kids in their little robes, and they're all very British, and everyone likes that. And then instead of learning incantations or playing with their little wand, what they were doing was putting together AR-15s. And Defense Against the Dark Arts class was actually a form of target practice. This movie takes on very, very dark tones as soon as you swap out magic for guns. Because that is exactly what it is. They are teaching them how to utilize weapons and become more powerful at them. So when they get up to the higher level spells, you're talking about bazookas. They can blow up buildings. They can disappear people from the universe. That is what a bazooka does. I think the thing that Harry Potters don't want to admit is that Hogwarts is the ideal for Trump's America. This is what they want. Every teacher in every classroom has a gun their magic abilities. Every student in every classroom has a gun, their magic abilities. And the only thing that can stop a bad guy with magic is a good guy with magic. Now, since this came up multiple times throughout my week, I then spent more time thinking about Harry Potter. And oh my God, is this a terrible thing. But what I realized that Harry Potter, in their world, all the spells are essentially incantations. Because what we have seen in a couple of episodes within the Harry Potter universe is that incorrect pronunciation will negatively impact the spell you're trying to cast. Which made me realize that people who can't speak, or who cannot speak well, or maybe have a lisp or something like that, they probably cannot be wizards even if they have whatever magical thing the wizard's supposed to have that makes them be able to be wizards. So this is a selective group. But then I realized the ultimate defense against a wizard is actually a throat punch. Because if they can't speak, they can't do their incantations. If they can't do their incantations, they can't do spells at you. Now they're just little kids. One thing I would really enjoy doing is going around throat punching everyone in Hogwarts. So as I was having this conversation with some of my coworkers and friends, who really seemed to be disturbed for some reason at the idea that I was getting gleeful about the idea of punching 12-year-old British kids in the throat, someone brought up the idea of a magical hand grenade that would, you know, that would be able to take me out. But I'm like, Aren't you just talking about a hand grenade? I mean, there doesn't need to be anything magical about it. It's just a hand grenade. It, you throw it at someone, it explodes, and they die. But again, that takes us back to the core sensibilities, the core violence that underlies the Harry Potter universe and Hogwarts, and why this is such a dangerous system to have as a school. So the messages of people trying to convince me that magic is okay, that Hogwarts is okay, what you've actually done is made me think about it harder and now I've come to the point where I now am more against Harry Potter than I was before. And let's be really clear, I was never really pro-Harry Potter. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or go to velocipeter.com slash podcast. Maybe he'll cut it to bit gathered. Was it magic is a gun with no safety triggered by the emotions of in Magic is a gun with no safety triggered by the emotions in the hands Magic is a gun with no safety triggered by the emotion of the not triggered by